the people in Thyatira were primarily concerned with making money. City life revolved around a series of trade guilds or associations. They brought people together in a profession. What they did is organize to protect their mutual interest and to establish standards. These were not unlike, say, the American Medical Association or the National Education Association today. Among other industries, Thyatira had a thriving textile industry, leather goods, ceramics, metalworking, and each of these industries were governed by a guild. Now, they were strong, so strong that in order to do business, you needed to belong to one of those guilds. To refuse to join would be like being a non-union auto worker in the 1970s in Detroit. Alone, this wouldn't have been a big deal, except that what happened is the line between their business life professional life, and their personal lives became blurred in these associations. Regularly, they held meetings to schedule to talk over business, but um, it was, it, that alone wouldn't have been a big deal. The problem was these weren't just business meetings. They included banquets held in local temples. The menu included meat that had been sacrificed to idols and copious amounts of alcohol and sexual promiscuity with temple prostitutes. So imagine that you've just become a Christian. What should you do? Resign your association membership? Or was there a way to participate in these activities without compromising your faith? It was an important question. Now, before we look at the answer that's provided in this letter, there's some background you need to know about what's going on. There was a person in this church who uh, was teaching that the trade association thing really wasn't a very big deal. The letter calls her Jezebel, although almost certainly that was not her name. In fact, we're not even sure that she was a woman. The letter calls her a prophet, and we often think of prophets as people who predict the future, and some may, but more commonly they were inspired teachers, someone who spoke for God. And remember, this is a time before the New Testament that we have today had been compiled, and so it was an important role. But here the term Jezebel is used as a kind of shorthand to describe the corrosive relationship um, or effect that this person had on the people in this church. Now the original Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, a king who ruled the northern nation 900 years before. She was the daughter of a rival king. She'd married Ahab. She was a fanatic follower of a fertility cult um, that worshipped the Canaanite god Baal. When they married, rather than Jezebel converting to Judaism... Ahab converted to Baal worship. Ironically, her name means pure or chaste, but like the singer Madonna, she didn't live up to her name. You see, Baal worship was not benign. It included practices like child sacrifice and sacred prostitution. Once Jezebel was installed as king, King Ahab set up an altar to Baal. He even sacrificed his oldest son and his youngest son to him. Jezebel also tried killing off a number of Israel's prophets. They escaped, and many of them did anyway. Um, and she also conspired to steal the land of a neighbor named Naboth. Naboth owned an adjoining vineyard. Ahab wanted it. Jezebel figured out a way to have him executed. And when that happened, Elijah, Israel's greatest prophet at the time, went to Ahab and confronted him, predicting disaster would soon come on the family and the nation. The writer of that history, which you can find in 1 and 2 Kings, inserts these editorial comments. First, he says, There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel his wife. That's in 1 Kings 21. 
And then he adds in 1 Kings 16, Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. And by the way, that's saying something. So when we read the letter in a moment, you'll understand that Jesus is saying that while Jezebel may claim to have special revelation from God, in reality, she's leading them into idolatry and sexual immorality and away from faithfulness to God. When this well-regarded teacher, because that's what this person was, this was someone people were predisposed to listen to, when, they told, when this teacher told them that it was okay to attend feasts in the Union Hall, many listened. And the logic may have gone something like this. Let's be practical. To work, you, know, you need to be able to work. And if you don't work, you won't be able to eat. So go. God understands. And plus, remember, idols aren't real. Sure, some think they are, but you know better. So don't worry. You can't be hurt by these false gods. Oh, and about the sexual stuff, well, if you want, you don't have to participate. But it's not such a big deal if you do. Remember that it's the soul, not the body that counts. Our souls belong to God, so it doesn't matter what you do with your body. God understands. And even if that's not true, he forgives. It's the deep things that matter. Not Those are the things that you need to be concerned with. Not a silly list of do's and don'ts. So Jezebel's message, as you can imagine, was very popular. It meant that the business owner could have his cake and eat it too. His family could work hard, play hard, and still fit in without letting God down. Except that they couldn't. It's easy to come up with excuses in order to do what we want to do. It's tempting to selectively pick and choose what we want to obey. Those ideas were convenient and popular. They were also wrong, which is why, as you'll see in a moment, um, John warned them, or Jesus warns them, that if they persist, God will punish them. So with that as background, I want you to listen to this letter. It's in Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Um, We'll have the words on the screen as I read. These are the words of the Son of God, that's Jesus, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. 
Jesus is described right at the beginning as um, having eyes like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. And what he intends to say here is that Jesus is so insightful that he sees through the clever arguments of Jezebel and also has the strength of character to stand for the truth. The letter starts, though, with a compliment. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. So they are doing well. They're loving people. They have faith. They're standing up to pressure. In fact, they're getting better and better at it all the time. Nevertheless, he says, you're failing. First, you're tolerating the intolerable Jezebel. She's deceived you. It should have been immediately full, uh, uh, clear to you, immediately obvious that she's full of it. But you're not only failing to confront her lies, you're allowing yourselves to be led into sin. And then he says, I've given her time to repent, but she's refused. Jesus is begging them to do something about this, to not tolerate her teaching any longer. What she's teaching is dangerous. It's doing the people and the church irreparable harm. So he tells them that if they don't discipline her, he will. Again, it's not hard to understand why this was such a problem. With such social pressure to fit in, it's not surprising that some people caved. There were those who gave in also because they just wanted to. The drinking and sex were just too tempting. Again, sin often comes with its own excuses, and that's what happened here. So some abandoned what they knew was right and gave in to the pressure to participate in these gatherings and were carried away by their own desires. Jesus condemns that, and he says, in the end, I'm going to discipline you, and I'll discipline Jezebel if you don't. How? Well, he first says that instead of going to bed with a prostitute, she's going to end up sick in a hospital bed. Her followers will die, certainly spiritually and eventually physically, unless they leave this life of sin. And when these things happen, he says, it is clear to everyone how serious I am about sin. It simply can't be tolerated. Verse 22, Jesus talks about a bed of suffering, about sin making them sick. That seems strange to our ears because mostly the modern idea that God's ways, the moral and ethical standards that we find in the Bible, are too restrictive, that God wants to take the fun out of life. But it isn't true. Dante, the Italian poet, wrote in the Divine Comedy that the punishment for sin is the sin itself without illusion. The punishment for sin is the sin itself without illusion. Others have added that we are punished not for our sins, but by our sins. Not punished for our sins, but by our sins. The truth is that what we think will make us happy actually will make us miserable. Now, despite these harsh words, he ends up acknowledging that not everyone has joined Jezebel. In fact, many, if not most of the people, have remained faithful to Jesus. Now, they may be tolerating Jezebel, and that's one sin, but they haven't actively participated in her misbehavior. And so he says to them, be faithful, reject what Jezebel is teaching, understand that the so-called secrets that she says uh, are true are really lies from the mouth of Satan. Instead, hold on to the truth that you've been taught. Now, with that, we need to talk about how we can live this message out, how to face the challenges that we have today, the places in our lives where we're tempted to compromise, to quiet the voices of the modern Jezebels who say, don't worry, it's okay, when it's not. The Jezebel in Thyatira misled the people into sexual immorality and idolatry, and in some ways, nothing's changed. 
Sexual immorality is still an issue today. That said, it's a misconception to say that the Bible is against sex. It's not. Just read the Song of Solomon. Not if you're a teenager, but anyone else can read it. But what the Bible does teach is that God has put boundaries around its expression. So sex is a wonderful thing, but it has to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, I know that the vast majority of couples today live together before they're married, Christian couples as well. And I've heard all the arguments from we're saving for a house to, you know, it's a great way to try things out before we make this permanent. It helps to make certain that we're really compatible, except that it doesn't, and it isn't. Divorce rates among couples who live together before they're married is higher than for those who don't. And even if that weren't the case, God has asked us to wait. Marriage is the best place for the physical part of a relationship to take place. A related issue is pornography. There's a growing conversation I've been running into about age-appropriate porn. Let me just say this clearly. There is no such thing as age-appropriate pornography. It's, no, it's not appropriate no matter what the age. At a minimum, it objectifies and dehumanizes women. And there's a growing consensus that repeated exposure rewires the brain in some troubling ways. A related issue is entertainment. There's just an amount of sex on even network television is astounding. During COVID, Kathy and I were watching, a, streaming a show on, I think it was on Netflix. It was, I'd seen it on somebody's list of top 10. Um, and it was consistently funny. The characters were really interesting. And after the third episode, Kathy said, we shouldn't be watching this. It's just too raunchy. And she was right. And I was embarrassed. I wasn't the first one to suggest it. But we also need to be careful about how much violence we see. TV and video game violence can desensitize us in ways that isn't healthy. The second area the people of Thyatira were being misled was into idol worship. We have a hard time wrapping our heads around this one because, after all, few people today have statues of Greek gods in their living rooms or totem poles in their backyards. But if you understand the function of idols, you start seeing them everywhere. An idol is anything that takes the place of God at the center of our lives. Anything that takes the place of God at the center of our lives. It's making a good thing an ultimate thing. It's something that has replaced God in our hearts. So there's some important questions we need to ask ourselves. Is there anything that's more important to you than God? Is there something that has become all-consuming? Is there something you just have to have or can't imagine living without? It could be a career. And the people in Thyatira lived in a world where business results were a measure of success. Some in the church were good at making money. They may not even have been greedy, but they were just enjoyed the challenge of building a successful business. To be in the game then meant belonging to one of these trade associations. And if they didn't, they knew the business would suffer. They might even have to find a new career or end up impoverished in a world where to be poor was quite bleak. So when someone came along and said, you can have it all, they were very tempted. But this letter warned them that that would be disastrous. Yes, if they refused to give in, they might struggle materially. But they would also be people who were being faithful to God. It was hard to say no. But what they realized and what we need to know is that idols ultimately disappoint us. In fact, they enslave. What we think will make us happy in the end will make us miserable. In every age, there's a temptation to compromise. So how can we follow Jesus without compromising? 
What's interesting about this advice in the letter is that it doesn't end with advice about opposing Jezebel's. In fact, Jesus promises, I'm going to take care of her. Instead, uh, becoming known as a church who's against everything, trade associations, temples, idol meat, sexual immorality, even if those were things they were to avoid, he tells them instead to be known for something positive, faithfulness to God. As Christians, we need to be known more for what we're for than what we're against. At the beginning of the letter, Jesus praises them for their love and faith, for their service and patient endurance. So what would it look like if we were known more for the way that we treat the poor, the sick, the broken, the abused, the refugee, the overlooked, and the forgotten, if people knew that we really loved others? What if we were known more for our faithfulness to God rather than for our angry tweets? Known more for what we're holding on to than what we reject? Known more for our faithfulness and singleness in marriage? Known as people who put God first, not something else that consumes our lives? Now, it's true, we need to stand for something, and we must not tolerate sin within the church or within our lives. But even more, we need to live lives that demonstrate the truth and beauty and goodness of the good news of Jesus Christ. There may be those around us who don't know yet that Jesus has loved them more than they could ever imagine. They come to know the truth that Jesus has lived the life that they have tried to live but cannot that he died the death that we deserved and rose again so that we might have life in his name. And in him is our true happiness and joy. Would you pray with me? Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand the ways that we're tempted to make compromises. Make us intolerant of any idea that leads us not toward you, but away from you. Give us the wisdom to know what is right, the courage of our convictions, and the desire to obey. And may we remember that we do all of this, not in our own strength, but by the power of your Spirit at work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.